Good morning. Thanks for being here. Uh, we're going to start off this morning. We're going we're gonna to talk about teams, okay? Who, who's, your, who's your favorite team? Let's hear it. Shout it out. Who is it? Come on, everyone. All right, good. I got all that. Okay, is, it, uh, is, is, is this your team? No, it's not. That's only Taylor's team. That's, his is the only one, okay? All right, that's, that's not your team. Is, is this your team? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, mixed, mixed uh, emotions on that one for some of us. All right. Let's, uh, let's get a little, little closer to home. How about this one? Okay. All right. That's good. That's good. All right. What about this one? Is this your team? Yeah. Oh, thank you. That's, yeah. Cool. All right. So teams are important to us, right? So... We ha- our closets are filled with these colors and these logos, and you maybe have it on the lock screen of your phone and bumper stickers on your cars, and we get this shared sense of identity that comes with teams. There's a sense of camaraderie that comes with these teams. We, we experience the highs and the lows together. This is something that is like our, our hope and tragedy, and just all of it is mixed in with, with teams. We're going to talk and continue our series on the revolution this week. We're going to talk about family, actually, but I want to set it up with that concept of team, because I think teams like that, when you are fully invested and it is everything and who you are, that's closer to what Jesus is talking about when he talks about family. And so we're going to start this morning by talking about the first century family and just what's the context for what Jesus is bringing up and how does this work. And I want us to kind of think like the writers of the Bible and think like the the original audience would as we think about what Jesus has to say this morning. So first off, first century family, it is this sense of identity. Your identity comes from your family. We see this a little bit in uh, the genealogies that are important in the Bible, you know, those passages that we skip over a lot, but it's so important for them to connect their heritage and their lineage and to understand you are the son of someone, you know, Jesus, the son of Joseph. A couple of Jesus' disciples, they are the son of sons of Zebedee, all right? We, we see this in, in the faith system, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, your identity of who you come from is important. And so that aspect of identity is is crucial for a first century family. But it's also more than that. It's identity, but it's action as well. Your profession comes from your family for, for several reasons. So your you would learn from your father. You would come on as an apprentice under your father. You would learn the family trade, whether it's working in the fields or working in a shop or some type of of artisan craftsmanship, right? And so it's not just the knowledge piece of a father passing that down to a son or a mother passing it down to a daughter, but there's also tools that are involved with that. So you, you think about Jesus and and being a a carpenter, and the supplies that he would have to have from his father. You can't just one day decide that you're going to watch a YouTube video and dive into this profession. It takes knowledge, it takes tools, it takes a reputation 
built by your father and his father. All of these things are very important for the action. So your first century family determines your action. It also determines your location. And so we, we see this with Jesus. He is called Jesus of Nazareth, right? There's a, a locality to his name. We see this when the people are talking about Jesus' disciples, and they're like, these are fishermen from Galilee. Like, I know the place where they're from. And you would have big extended families for several reasons. One, it's, it's protection, uh, against other people, but it's protection for you to get the job done. You're going to have a lot of kids to kind of like in the West in the wilderness days, you got to work the farm. So you're going to have lots of kids to go do the work. You're going to have a big family as a sense of shared generational wealth as well. Your family is going to live together all under one household. And that's interesting when you think about it. There's these passages in the Bible that we connect with heaven where Jesus says, my father's house has many rooms. Like, okay, there's this place in heaven that is there for us. There's space for us. And Jesus says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you to, to come. The reason why he does that is this is wedding language. This is first century wedding language. So what would happen is these two families would negotiate a dowry for the, the groom and the bride and how these two kids are going to get married. And then that groom-to-be would actually leave. And he would go to his father's house and he would extend on an addition to his father's house. Because that's where you're going to live as a new Married couple. Sounds fun, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, but the son, it's almost like the trial for the son. Can you do this? Can you provide for your future wife? How long will it take to do that? It, it would depend on the father and how much help he's going to have and the tools that you need. And it's going to take some, some equity and some blood and some sweat and probably some tears for you to be able to build this house for your future bride. Extended families living together with this mindset of identity and this um, shared generational wealth of what you do, I'm also doing. And we're all in this together. You see how team and identity starts to fit a little closer with our modern interpretation of family. We can live wherever we want. Right? We have airplanes and cars and you can go to school to learn whatever you want regardless of what your parents learned. And you have this sense of hope and freedom and you can, you can do anything. It's a little different. When Jesus talks about family, this is his context that he's talking about. And so we got to put on that kind of first century hat and understand what's happening here. Because we're going to hear some claims from Jesus, and they are strange. Chad did give me a hard passage, okay? This is some, I bet you haven't heard this pre preach before in, in a church. It's not easy to talk about, but we're going to see Jesus's idea of family come full circle. Uh, I, I would love to do a deep dive on 
what we know about Jesus' family and, and what happened and everything, there's some extra notes, some like footnotes in the Sunday program or in your notes tab online. Do some research later. I think it is kind of helpful to understand just what do we know about Jesus' family? What, what happened and, and what's there? So there's some, there's some homework for you there. But when we read the passages today, context is key. We have to understand the context of family and what is going on in these words and these images that are being used. Because if we just read this at face value, Jesus is a big, giant jerk, okay? At best. I mean, this is not the Jesus, love your neighbor Jesus that that we know. Some of this stuff is going to sound really strange. Like, how could he say that? How could he do this? At worst, he's a criminal based on the things that he says here. In fact, he could be called a lot of things. He could be called a, an arsonist, home-wrecking, storm-chasing bail bondsman on, on this passage. What are we talking about today? We're talking about Luke 12. It's all in the Bible. It's very strange, okay? But this passage is going to tell us a lot about family, but it's going to tell us a lot about Jesus. And so as we read this, the thing I want you to keep on your mind is who is Jesus and what does this say about family? Who is Jesus and what does this have to do with family? The first thing that we need to say about Jesus is that he is not an arsonist, okay? Maybe encouraging to know that we, we get to claim that, this morning. Uh, We're going to look in Luke chapter 12, and verse 49 says this, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Really? Like, you can't say that, Jesus. Someday we're going to have these things called movie theaters and and public buildings, and you can't yell fire in, in a church or in a movie theater. It's just not right. You can't do that. But this is what he says, all right? I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. It feels weird to say that. Here's the deal. When we read fire in Scripture, fire is is an image. It's a symbol. So what are we talking about with it? It's an image for judgment. It's a symbol for uh, purification. Okay? So we're not talking about actual fires burning. We don't see his disciples and his early followers going around and, and starting fires and being arsonists. Thankfully, we, we don't see that, okay? This is a sense of judgment, and that's a harsh word to say, but think about judgment in the best sense of the word, okay? Think about when you see something happen in life, when you see someone wronged, and you have that sense within you of like, oh, no, that's not right. When you see racism happen in front of your eyes and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to explode. This is not okay. I'm not going to stand for that. Why does this happen? Why would God allow for this to happen? That sense of righteous indignation, that's the kind of judgment we're talking about right now. So when you read fire and judgment, know that it's judgment in the best possible way. We want the judgment of God. We need the judgment of God because when we look out in the world, we don't like the way that it looks. 
There are some things that are very wrong that we need God to fix and make right. This is the type of fire and judgment that Jesus says, I came to bring. Amen? And thank God. It's also, fire brings judgment. It also brings purification. Think about this in like that team dynamic sense. When you have the, um, when you're pressed, when you go through a trial, when you're, when you are tested, that's when you get to see what happens. When, when metal goes into the fire, that's when we remove all of those impurities. That's when we get really what we're after. That's the type of fire and purification that we get. In verse 12, 50, it says, I have a baptism to undergo, and what a constraint I am under until, is, until it is completed. Jesus knows what he has to do, and he calls it a, a, a baptism. When, when he talks about baptism, it's not just the act of going underwater and, and coming up. It's not just being dunked. It's not him jumping in a, in a pool and just getting wet. He, this is, he's using this word in the whole sense of his death and his burial and his resurrection. He, he knows what's coming. He knows what his purpose is. He says, I have a baptism to undergo, and what a constraint. He can feel it. He can feel that pressure from all different sides as he does the will of God. He is hopeful for this. He is hopeful for an upcoming judgment and trial and persecution or purification in the best possible way. Second thing we need to say is Jesus is not a home wrecker. <laughs> Because when you read the next, next passage, you might doubt that a little bit. In Luke 12, 51, it says, Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? Well, yeah, of course. We sing that every Christmas. Of course, that's exactly what you came to do. Little tiny baby Jesus came to bring peace down. And he says, no, I tell you but division. Huh? Say, What? He says, from now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is a dicey situation. Jesus paints a picture of a family that is a little little sketchy. Like if this was a movie, this movie is written by M. Night Shyamalan and directed by Wes Craven. Like it is, it is dark and like someone's going to get knocked off real soon. Like it is not, not a good situation. This is not what you want your, your Christmas dinner to look like, okay? But Jesus doesn't prescribe this to happen. So let's see that. He's not saying, this is what I want to happen. It, it, it all stems from this question. Remember what we're going to ask? Who is Jesus? All of this stems from the question, who is Jesus? Because when you take that first century family, and everyone all living within one household, an extended family all right there, when one person decides to follow Jesus... Think about how much that changes. 
When one individual says, no, I'm going to trust in Jesus, that he is the Messiah, and, and therefore the whole powerful temple structure, I don't, I don't need to get in on that anymore. And, and I don't need to offer sacrifices anymore. I don't need to do all of these rituals and all of these festivals because who was the ultimate sacrifice? Who was the one that died for my sins? I don't, it, it was Jesus, right? And, and so when you have one person in this extended household family that says, no, God actually dwells in my heart now. He doesn't dwell at the temple. Then that causes instant division in the family. All because of Jesus. All because of what we say and believe about him. Jesus is not a homewrecker, but our decisions bring division. For you today, choosing Jesus could cost you. Choosing to follow Jesus might change your relationships. It might change the ways that you act. It might change your priorities. It might change your ethics. And because of that, you, you might miss out on a job. You might miss out on an interview. You might have some friends that don't want to spend time with you anymore because of the decision that you make about Jesus. Who is Jesus? And what does it mean for your family? Jesus forces us to make that decision. What we believe about Jesus changes our interaction and our dynamic with others, and that can cause division. He doesn't prescribe it to happen, but he's saying, hey, this is going to happen in your life. Next up, things I never thought I'd have to say in church, Jesus is not a storm chaser, okay? I grew up in Oklahoma, and we have we have storms and tornadoes, and, and there are paid professional storm chasers that go up in helicopters and fly around and video it and drive around in trucks on all these country roads and get as close as they can to the tornado because that's what we do. We need to watch and we need to see where it is and we need to know what's going on. And, and then there's amateur storm chasers, right, that drive around and they just want to get close to the action and feel the adrenaline rush, I, I, I guess. I, I don't, it's strange to me. It's, that's not me. I don't think Jesus is a storm chaser in the fact that he's going to get an adrenaline rush out of, out of nature. Jesus has a pretty sober uh, relationship with nature. He, he's asleep in a boat one time when this massive storm pops up. His disciples wake him up. He's still napping, and he takes the time to give them an object lesson before he does his little Thanos snap and stops the, the storm. So, he shows like, hey, nature is here and it's wild and powerful and thunderstorms and tornado and like, and here's me, okay? Like just, just so you know, I, I don't need to chase storms for an adrenaline rush. But he does talk about Palestinian weather here. So why does he do that? What's he talking about? He does talk about these weather patterns. And in, in, in verse 12, he says, he says to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. 
And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. So I want to show you on a map kind of what's happening here and, and why this makes sense. What is west of that dot? What do you see? A lot of blue, right? That's a lot of blue. That's the Mediterranean Sea. And so if you see clouds building up on the Mediterranean Sea, and suddenly you feel the wind shift from the west, and hit, you know that that storm is moving in. It's pretty simple, right? What do you see south of that dot on there? Desert. That's, that's a lot of brown, right? So when the south winds come up, it's going to be hot, hot, dry wind, dry out your plants. You are going to be able to notice just based on the wind what's going to happen. And so Jesus says this to him, hey, you know how to do this with nature, right? We, we don't. We just ask Siri, you know, what, what's it going to be? And then our weathermen aren't even right, but there's a lot of that. Um, but what he's doing is he's saying, look around. Don't miss the signs. You know how to read the signs of the weather, right? Look around and see what's happening here. He draws on their common understanding. And then he says this in 56. He calls them hypocrites. Again, whew, harsh. He calls them hypocrites, and he says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Jesus says there's a storm that's brewing. Don't miss it. Look around. And look around, and the, the blind see. The, the sick are healed can you see these signs? Can you see the power and the authority that Jesus teaches with? Can you see the weak that are made strong? Can you see that the outcast are now included? Can you see lives being changed by his teaching? Can you see sinners quitting? Look around and do not miss this. So what about your life? Where has God been present in your life? That when you look around, you go, oh yeah, he has been pursuing me. He has been caring for me. He has been right there all along. What are those things you can't explain in your life? That aspect of you being this self-made person, when you really look back on it, you go, no, I had a lot of help on the way. Uh, you know, I pulled myself up from, from my bootstraps. You had boots to do that, didn't you? You had some help. You had people in your life that taught you. You had that coach that without them, you wouldn't be here today. You had that teacher that saw you and that spoke life into you. That God's been putting people in your story and in your path to, to get you to this point. And Jesus is saying, can you see this? That, that accident that you know you shouldn't have walked away from. The, the close call that you can't explain. And God's whispering, I am here. 
I'm pursuing you. I want you to know me. Can we look around and can we see the signs of God's work in our life? Jesus is not a storm chaser, but the signs do point to Jesus. And finally, Jesus is not a bail bondsman. What? <laughs> Strange. Right before the, uh, the Rona shut everything down, we were in Florida, and we were at a church conference. And on the way to where this church was, there was this giant jail on this side of the road. Huge complex, really tall walls, the razor wire, the whole thing. On this side of the street, row after row of bail bonds. Just shop after shop. Why? Because when you go there... Your family comes out, and they need help, and they need somewhere to turn. They're going to go right across the street, and they're going to find someone to help. And so Jesus tells this story here, starting in, in 57, and he talks about a judge and a magistrate and an adversary. The whole thing, basically, you get in trouble, and, and you go to jail. And, and this story comes up in other places in the gospel, but in this particular use and instance of the story, we find the, uh, the, the emphasis here in, in that last verse, in verse 59. We, we find the context of the story in verse 59. It says, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Hey, if, if you're locked up, you're not going to get out until you pay the last penny. You're going to be on the hook for this. You need to settle your account. You need to settle your account with God. Now, I'll tell you what, our next series is going to be Confessions of a Pastor. I'm going to start right now. I, I, don't, I don't like these types of passages. I don't I'm uncomfortable with these passages that talk about debts with God and how we make that right and judgment and separation and, and penalty. It, I don't like it. But here, Luke talks about it. And in a lot of the New Testament that Paul writes, Paul talks about it. Why? Because Jesus talks about it. Okay, what does it say about Jesus, and what does it say about family? Here's the bad news. You, you, you can't pay that debt back. It's not this scale that, well, if I do enough good things and they kind of weigh out like all of my young, wild, and crazy days, and like, oh, it's like, eh, it's close enough. Like, it's not a close enough type situation. That's not what we see here. We see that you will not be able to pay back this debt. That's the bad news. You can't pay the debt back. What's the good news? You don't have to because the debt has been forgiven. Amen? That Jesus, because of what he did, and that's the best news possible, there is a debt forgiveness program that you can take advantage of. It is, it is corny and it's amazing all at the same time. Who is Jesus and what does it mean for family? What does it mean to be a part of Jesus' team? 
In Luke 8, there's this section where Jesus is in this house and he's teaching and the place is packed and some people work their way up to the front. And they're like, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside. And he goes, no, no. My mother and my brothers, my family, they are the ones who, who hear the word of God and who obey. He says, that's who my family is. And so he just throws away all of the first century context and all of the, the obligation to, to family. And he says, no, what family really, what this is really about is people that will hear my words and obey. It's not a popular word, obedience. In, in America, it's, it's very hard for us to hear that word. We have this, our identity is this collective sense of independence, this collective sense of freedom, right? Uh, we have on our license plates, don't tread on me, don't, don't tell me what to do. And Jesus says, hey, you want freedom? You want real freedom? Let me forgive you, okay? Hear my words and obey. You want real change? Let the Father change you. Live from a sense of abundance. Give from a sense of freedom. Serve from a place of love. Live from a sense of peace. When you want to find your life, you find it when you lose it. You find it when you forsake all else and all other obligations and all other loyalties and when you are obedient to God and His Word. And that doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you have it all figured out. But the good news is that we can be forgiven and we can be changed and we can start to live in that new life. This revolution doesn't start with us. It starts with Jesus. It starts with his life and death and resurrection. It starts with his grace and his forgiveness. But it's a decision. Will you join this family? Will you join this team? I want to show you a, a video of a baptism this week of someone doing just that. He is my savior, and he is the leader of my life. We baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right. Amen. So that's Lionel Lincoln on his 18th birthday this week was obedient to baptism. Amen, right? To say, no, this is what I believe. This is who I am. I'm going to live in this truth, and I'm going to proclaim that. We come to a time of communion. That type of life and that decision is only possible because of who Jesus was and what he did and what it means for us to be a part of his family. And so that's why we take the bread. 
and we remember the life of Jesus. We remember that his body was broken for us. So take and eat together. And Jesus told us whenever you gather together to do this in remembrance of him, we remember his blood that was shed for us, that forgives us. Let's pray together. God, thank you for that simple truth. And thank you for the good news that gives us hope and gives us freedom and creates a way for us forward. We love you and we thank you for the life change that we see happen. We thank you for the ways that you work in us. Help us to see those things. Help us to see where you have been pursuing us, where you've been knocking on the doors to our heart. And help us to respond each and every day to respond in faithfulness to you. God, we want to be your children. We want to be a part of your family. We want to be those that hear your word and obey it and put it into practice. So give us the people around us to do that. Give us the strength to do that, to live for you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.